children upstairs for kids crew. Not just our children, but also our leaders that are involved in that this month. We've got a team of people each and every month that are involved in providing the, just the ministry support and leadership for our kids. We're so thankful for all of our leaders. As they're doing that, I want to encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 2 in your Bibles. That's where we're going to be today, Mark chapter 2. You know, once upon a time, it was really taboo for Christians, especially in, in, in Baptist circles, right, in, in more conservative uh, Baptist circles, it was really taboo for Christians to get tattoos, right? And, uh, and, and you, 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 there may be many that still feel that way uh, today. I'm, I'm not going to try to debate uh, the merits of getting tattoos or not having tattoos. I, I'm not trying to open that can of worms this morning. But when you think about, when you think about tattoos, this, is, this has always been kind of my thing against uh, tattoos, okay? Uh, and it's just a personal thing. It's not, I promise you, it's not biblical at all when you hear what I'm about to say. Uh, but eventually, our skin uh, begins to wear out, right? The older we get, the, it, the, the skin, it, it's not as... Uh, it's, it's not as firm as it used to be. Things begin to sag a little. Things begin to get stretched out. Things, you know, the color of, even of our skin, we get spots and things over it. I mean, you know, and, and so no matter how cool and how awesome that tattoo looks today, someday people are going to stare at that. Your kids, your grandkids are going to stare at that and they're going to say, what does that say? What does that mean, right? It's the whole idea of the fact that, that our, our bodies change as we age. Things, uh, things just wear out. I don't know a better way to put it, right? They do. Uh, and and there have been a few people along the way that have made some really unfortunate choices with the placement of their tattoos, right? Because they put them in, in spots that are some of the worst of the worst places you could possibly get a tattoo, understanding that eventually the, the skin and then that particular area isn't going to look as beautiful at, you know, at uh, at, at 75 as it did when you were 25, right? And, uh, and that's just a good principle to live by, young people, just some wisdom just to pour into you is that we all, you know, life happens. And, uh, it, it, but as, I was, as I've been thinking through this week's passage, I've been thinking about that. You may think that's a really odd thing to reflect on and think about when you're studying the Bible. But I was trying to think this, this week of uh, along the lines of what the text presents, of how things wear out over time and how things over time change. And, and it'll make more sense, okay, when we dig into the passage in, in just a minute. Uh, and, and particularly as we, as we give some background and some insight of all, on all of this. But here's, here's the, the point that I want to make before we jump into that. Uh, we, understand, we understand this idea that, uh, that everything that is new eventually becomes old, right? Uh, that, that's, the, that's life. That things that, that, that start out eventually they wear out. That's just, that's, that's a part of the aging process. It's a part of life. It's a, it's a reality that we live with in this world. And Jesus uses a couple of examples today that 
that try to undergird this truth that he's teaching. And it's interesting that the examples that Jesus gives us in this particular text have to do with the idea of how things, the newness wears off, right? The new car smell uh, goes away. The, the newness of that new, that new toy that you got, that new thing that you saved up, the newness of those things wears off o- over time. And what maybe what we need to understand as we study, as we dig into this passage today, particularly in light of the, of the fact that none of us are getting any younger, right? The clock is not ticking backward for us. The thing that we need to understand is that as we journey through life, as we, even as we might say as we grow older in life, we want to do everything we can to make the most of what we've been given, the opportunities that have been set before us, understanding that for us, every one of us, the common denominator, the thing that we all share in life is that our lives are limited. Now, it's going to be different for each of us. Some of us will live longer than others. Some of us, for some of us, you know, life will be over sooner and, and the journey ends in a different place. Some people will live in, for years until literally their body just wears out and others may die by other tragic circumstances. We understand that that's a part of life. We're all born into this world and at a certain point, if Jesus should tarry, at a certain point, we will all exit from this earth as well. And as we do, as we step out of this, this perishable body into an imperishable eternity, we, wanted, we want to know that we are ready to face what is coming. And Jesus teaches in this passage that we're going to study this morning in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Jesus actually teaches an important principle about how we should, we should do everything that we can to celebrate, and not just celebrate, but to make the most of the time we've been given. And so let's study that together as we look at Mark. Did I say Acts 2 a minute ago? I did, didn't I? It just dawned on me. We're not in the book of Acts. We're in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Listen, it's been a week this week at our house. Uh, you probably saw my daughter Emery at the sling and the broken arm and all of that. And it's just been one of those weeks. So if I say something dumb like a different book of the Bible, you know what I meant, okay? <laughs> Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now let's, let's understand what Jesus is, is, is teaching us about in this passage. Because maybe like me, you've heard this passage before. Maybe you've wondered to yourself, what does wine and wineskins, what does a new patch on an old garment, what does that have to do with the idea of fasting? 
What, how, how are those things related? What, what, what is the connection with what Jesus is trying to say here? In order to understand that, we've got to do a little bit of background work and understand some of the context. So let's go back to verse 18, and let's just begin to slowly work our way through this passage. And as we do, let's try, I, want, I want to try to gain some insight with some understanding from the, the culture, and, and we might even just say the, the cultural situation of the day. And then let's look at the application of this passage. Let's understanding what it what it means then, let's look at what this means for us and, and how we ought to receive this word of instruction from Jesus. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, it tells us in verse 18. And people came to Jesus and they said, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? In this day and time, fasting was often used as a form of, of piety or as a way to show or demonstrate that you were really religious. And so people would, would fast, and through their fasting, it was sort of a means of, of demonstrating to everyone around them how religious and how devout they were. And, and so we would maybe use the word asceticism today, right? Asceticism is kind of the idea that, that of, of when we would discipline our bodies in some way, when we would discipline ourselves, even an extreme form of discipline, such as not eating, such as intentionally fasting from food in order to try to get our, our, our minds and our hearts in the right place. And Jesus isn't teaching that fasting is wrong. Understand that, right? Jesus is not teaching against fasting here. In fact, Jesus even points in other places, he points to the, the, the need and the benefit of fasting. And that we understand in the New Testament, as we go through the New Testament, that, there, that it talks about fasting. And, and he even, even the, the New Testament writers call on, on us to fast at certain points. So this isn't a statement against fasting, as if saying fasting is wrong and you shouldn't do it. But Jesus' point is that in the presence of me, in the presence of the Messiah, the Savior, he's saying, there's no need to fast. Why would he say that? Well, Jesus refers to himself in this passage as the bridegroom. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Why would they fast when the bridegroom is with them? In, in the culture, in, in the day and time in which Jesus lived, a wedding was typically a celebration that would last for several days at a time. And so weddings were a big deal then, just as weddings are a big deal today. We understand weddings are still a big deal today. Ask any family that's prepping for a wedding right now, and they'll tell you weddings are a big deal today. But in Jesus' day and time, often a wedding was an event that went on for multiple days because family would gather together at weddings, and it became more than just a celebration of the couple that were, that were being wed, but in many ways, it was a celebration of the families involved. It was a uniting, not just of the couple, of the husband and wife, but a uniting of the families even in a partnership together with these families. And more than that, it was like a reunion. It was like a, a celebration, a gathering of people who many of them may have had to travel from some distance by foot to get to the wedding celebration, right? They didn't have, you, you couldn't just hop on uh, Southwest Airlines and fly to, you know, to be with your family. You couldn't catch, a, you couldn't catch a, a train ride or you couldn't get in your car and travel down the interstate to get to your family for a wedding celebration. Just the, just the journey itself, just the act of traveling to, 
to be with family for a wedding was a lot of work. And so when they got there, they were going to stay for a few days. They were going to stay for some time, and they were going to celebrate together. And so oftentimes, wedding celebrations turned into these family gatherings, these, these we'll call it a, a, a reunion of sorts, because that's really what it was in a lot of senses, that would last for several days. And over the course of that celebration, or those several days, the, the host families would give their best. They would prepare their best. They would bring out they would bring out their best wine, their best food, right? Just like you do when someone comes over, right? Your kids ever do this? Like you start getting certain dishes out at the house or you start getting certain silverware or certain things out and the kids say, is someone coming over? Right? They understand based on what you set the table with if you're expecting company or not. What well, is the same way in Jesus' day and time? They would put out their very best. We use the term even sometimes roll out the red carpet. They would roll out the red carpet, so to speak, by putting out their very best. And the celebration would go on for several days. And people understood what the host families, what they had done, the sacrifices that they had made, the, the, the expense, the, the, the way that they had worked hard for, for many, many weeks, many months in preparation for this celebration. And so you wouldn't go to a wedding celebration where your own family, your own friends sacrificed, worked hard, gave the very best of what they had to offer. And you wouldn't look in the face of that hospitality and say, no, I'm, you know, I'm fasting right now. I'm on a diet right now. I'm fasting. I'm I'm not going to eat right now. You wouldn't do that. It would be incredibly rude for a person to turn away that kind of sacrifice, that kind of hospitality. When you went to the wedding, you were going to celebrate. You were going to partake. You were going to join in with all of the festivities, not only because you wanted to celebrate the couple who were, who were being united together and the families that were being united together, but you understood what it cost those families to put on the party, the show, so to speak. And so, you got in. You, you, you jumped in the middle of it. You celebrated. You participated. You, you were engaged with what was going on. And Jesus is making this point. Understanding what it cost the father for the bridegroom to give himself to be united with the bride. That's Jesus and the sacrifice that he was going to make to be united together with us, his bride, his body, his his church, the people who would call on him by faith. And understanding the sacrifice involved, it would be wrong for us to try to falsely show some humility or say, no, Jesus, I'm, uh, I'm, I, I, this is too much for me. I, I want to I be humble and I want to be reverent or pious. It was much like, much like the instance when Peter says to Jesus, I would, I would never wash your feet. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. What is he saying to him? Look, don't give me that, don't give me that answer. Essentially what Jesus is saying, don't give me that. Don't play that game with me. I came to serve you, not the other way around. And in the presence of the Savior, in the presence of the bridegroom, in the presence of the one who had come to give himself for his people, there was no reason for mourning or fasting. There was no reason for false pretenses and show toward religious humility. This was a cause to celebrate in the presence of of the bridegroom. This was a cause to celebrate in the presence of the Savior. And so Jesus answers the question rather simply. Why don't your disciples fast 
like John's disciples do, like the Pharisees' disciples do? And Jesus' answer was rather simple. Because they don't need to. Because the bridegroom has come. Because why? There will come a day, he says, when the bridegroom will be, when I will be gone. And then there will be reason for fasting and mourning. But in, the, in, in my presence, there is only cause for joy and celebration. Now, he goes on to illustrate his point further by giving us these two poignant examples. And using these examples, we can understand that what Jesus is doing, ultimately, is he is speaking at the hearts of men who considered themselves very religious, very devout, very pious, people who considered themselves to be essentially self-righteous. We're, we're good enough. We're better than everybody else. We follow the rules. We play the games. We, do the, we, we keep the laws. We, we keep the, the traditions. We've done all the things that we're supposed to do to be right with God. And Jesus is essentially speaking to these people, and he's saying, you've missed it. You've missed it. Because it's not about following the traditions. It's not about keeping the rules. It's about a relationship, not about a ritual. And so that is the heart of what Jesus speaks to here. And that's why he uses these illustrations of new wineskins and the, and the new patch. Just to, to, to go back to the two illustrations that Jesus offers, here's how it works. He's saying, you don't take, you don't take a, a new patch and place it on an old garment. Because when that garment was cleaned, once you have patched the hole in that garment with the new piece of fabric or uh, the, the new piece of, of, of leather or hide or something of that nature, what was going to happen is that after that, that garment was washed, then that new patch would shrink because the old fabric, the old material around it was already shrunk, right? It was already it had already shrunk because of its age and its use, but this new patch would shrink and it would tear the garment worse. He offers the example, the illustration of the wineskins. What they would do is they would use, they would use animal skins for, for fermenting, for essentially for creating wine. And so they would, take, they would take unfermented grape juice and they would pour it into an animal skin. Oftentimes, it was, the, it was goat skin is what they would use. And so they would... They would uh, take goat skin, like the, the leg or the hide of a goat, and they would sew together this pouch, and then they would fill it with wine, and then the wine, as it aged, as it fermented, it would release, the, it would release gases, and those gases would cause that leather, that animal skin, to stretch. That hide would stretch. But once it was stretched, there was no going back. It was, it was stretched. It had taken on its new form. It wouldn't it wouldn't ever go back to its original form. And Jesus is saying, if you put new wine, unfermented wine, into old wineskins, as that wine begins to ferment and age, as the gases are released, as it begins to expand, it'll burst the skins and the wine will be lost. The point is, Jesus is saying essentially this. Look, I've come to do a new work. And unless you get your heart right, unless you are ready to receive the work that I have come to do, it will be lost on you. And how sad that people who thought themselves to be so religious, so devout, missed the new work that Jesus wanted to do simply because it was their 
their supposed devoutness that got in the way of what Jesus had to say. So with that in mind, let's get to the heart of what Jesus is teaching here. You see on the back of your, of your sermon guide, there are essentially three points that all relate to what Jesus is teaching here in this passage. The first thing that I, I want us to see is, is this, that Jesus offers us a new hope, a new hope. It's as if Jesus is saying, I have come and I have, I have come with a new way. I have a new way, a new system, a new way of seeing things, a new way of understanding things, a new way of doing things. I have come to offer you a new hope. Because see, prior to Christ, their hope was wrapped up in the law and their ability to keep the law. But what the law ultimately, what it pointed to was the fact that no one could be good enough because of the law. The law itself became uh, a, a prison. It became a set of handcuffs that, that, that they were bound to the law in their attempts to be good enough and to follow the law. But all the while, really, what it was was a reminder to them they could never be good enough. And Jesus is saying, I've come to give you a new hope. But not only did they have the law, but then on top of the law, they had the, the traditions, the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes. The scribes, I, I, we talked last week about the, the different tabernacles that existed, the different, uh, the different places where they would gather together, and they would, synagogues was really the word, and where they would gather together throughout their cities and they would worship together. And in these synagogues, you had scribes. Scribes were people who were, who were instructed, who were, uh, who were educated in, in the law, in the ways of the law. And what the scribes would do is they would teach the law to the people. They would teach them the way that they should live. But they, they had developed over time a system of all of these traditions that really took the law and, and exploded it to the point that there were all of these other laws that were based on trying to be faithful to the written law. And, and so there was this, this complicated convoluted system of religion and the scribes gained their power and their position from understanding this and then teaching it to others and the system worked in their favor of course because they were the pious ones they were the ones who could keep the law they were the ones that knew the law in fact they were the ones who got to write the laws themselves right they were the ones who were advantaged and and the common man was disadvantaged in that he he couldn't know the law, didn't know the law the way the scribes would, and the scribes used that knowledge to create a system where they were elevated and everybody else was basically told, try to keep up. What Jesus is saying is, I've come to do away with all of that. I've come to give you a new hope. No longer is your worth found in keeping the law or keeping the rules or in doing what everybody else says, but now your hope is found in me and in my presence. There's cause for celebration. John MacArthur in his commentary on this particular passage says something that I think is so powerful and at the same time it, it's condemning in a sense because we see ourselves, I think we can see ourselves even in his description of what's happening here. I've, I've put the quote on the screens for you to read, and it's going to be, it's, it's rather long, and so I'm going to read it to you. But listen to what MacArthur says about this, and let it challenge you. Because Jesus' point to his questioners was simply this. Judaism 
at its most devout level, as exemplified by the scribes and the Pharisees, was completely out of touch with God's plan of salvation. Now think about how condemning that is of a statement. That the religious leaders and their religious system was completely out of touch with God's plan of salvation. May it never be so that we as a church lose touch with God's plan of salvation. May we never somehow lose sight of our true purpose. May the, as we say here at first, may the main thing always be the main thing so that we don't lose sight of what matters. He goes on to say, they were mourning when they should have been rejoicing. Their their fasting was a sign of their mourning. They were mourning when they should have been rejoicing because they had rejected Jesus the Savior and clung to their own rules and regulations to earn salvation. Consequently, they had nothing in common with him. And listen to, to these next phrases, these next descriptions that he gives. They were consumed with self-righteousness. He preached divine grace. They denied they were sinners. He preached repentance from sin. They were proud of their religiosity. He preached humility. They embraced external ceremony and tradition. He preached a transformed heart. They loved the applause of men. He offered the approval of God. They had dead ritual. He offered a dynamic relationship. They promoted a system. He provided salvation. You see, this is the point. Jesus is saying to these very religious men, you're so caught up in your system that you're missing the salvation that has come. And if we're not careful, the very same thing can happen with us today. It's easy for us to look at this and think, oh, we would never do that. We would never get caught up in that. I would never make that mistake. But don't we? Don't we get so caught up in our our comforts and in our systems? Don't we get so wrapped up in our traditions that if we're not careful, it's entirely possible for us to miss Jesus because of all the other things that we're doing. And so Jesus points to these religious people and he says, I've come to give you a new hope. Secondly, he says this, I've come to give you a new heart. Because the hope that that Jesus brought meant that there needed to be a change in their hearts. There needed to be a change in the way that they lived. There needed to be a change in who they were. They needed the old heart removed and they needed a, a new heart by faith in Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus came to provide them. We understand that without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 11. Let me say that again so that you don't miss that. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. That means you can be doing all the right things. You can be following all the right rules, all the right laws, dress the right way, go the right places, say the right things, walk the right walk, do all these things. But if, if the, the true transformation of your heart never happens, then it's all in vain. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without a real transformation on the inside, 
You can do all the right things outwardly, and it's just a show. Jesus says, I've come to give you a new heart. I've come to put new wine and some new wine skins. I've come to, to give you a new hope, a new way, a new direction, a new plan. And in the presence of the Savior, understanding what he was giving up for us, there was no reason to mourn. There was no reason for fasting. There was reason for celebration. Sadly, Jesus is looking at these Pharisees. He's saying, but you're, you're missing it. A new hope that comes from having a new heart and ultimately that produces a new result. A new result. The new result is this. What you were powerless to do on your own, Jesus did for you. What you and I could never hope to do for ourselves, being good enough, earning God's favor through the things we've done, that somehow our good deeds would, would stack up and would outweigh our bad and that God would, would show his favor to us because we've done more good than bad, because we were good people. We could never be good enough. And what Jesus is, is saying essentially is, I've come to do away with your systems. I've come to scrap what, this, this whole thing, this whole structure that you've made. Now, it doesn't mean that the law itself was bad. Jesus never said the law is evil. Jesus just said, rather, I've come to fulfill the law. It wasn't the law that was the problem in and of itself. It was that there was this system that they had built on top of the law, and in this system it was very man-centric. It was very much centered on their works and their good deeds and their things. And Jesus is just saying, look, the law that I gave you I have come to be the embodiment, the perfect fulfillment of that law. I have come to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And unless you are willing to dismantle your systems and place your faith in my salvation, then you'll miss it. He offers a new hope and a new heart by faith that ultimately is able to produce a new result. Jesus is making the point that the gospel is not about what you, what you do to get to God, it's what God has done to get to you. Jesus is making the point that it's not what you have to do to earn God's favor, it's what God has done for you because you could never earn his favor on your own. And so Jesus says, look, I've got a new way. I want to put some, some, some new wine in some fresh wineskins and some new wineskins, which is his way of saying, I want to give you a new work, a new thing, and it's going to look different than what you know. I've come to, to take that, that old system that you have, and, and, and I've come to show you that that's not it, that instead it comes through faith, through, through faith in me, through trusting in my sacrifice, through celebrating the bridegroom who has come to claim his bride. Jesus wants to show us a new way. He wants to do a new work. And this is the point that is so critical, so crucial for us. Unless we are willing to trust in him by faith and not in our works, not in our goodness, not in our systems, not in our traditions, not in our rules and our laws, 
unless we are trusting in Jesus alone, by faith alone, then friends, we will miss it the same as the Pharisees and the scribes did. Jesus has come for us, and in his presence, there should be great joy, great celebration. There is reason for us to throw a party because we understand that what was once lost, now by faith, is found. What was once separated from God in sin, now is forgiven and set free by faith in Christ. And if we're willing to trust in him, if we're willing to call on him, as the Bible says, he takes the old heart of stone and he gives us a new heart, a new hope, and it produces a new result. In a moment this morning, we're going to have a time of response, a time of invitation. And in that time, I want to invite you that if, maybe if you're here today and you recognize that you've been trusting in the wrong things, that today, if you're ready, that you would come and you would place your faith and your trust in Jesus. Now, hear me on this. I don't mean that if you're a bad person, come forward today and we'll make you good. It's not what I mean. I don't mean that if you, uh, you know, I, frankly, this message really is aimed at a lot of good people in the sense that you're good, you've, you've done good things, you're, you're trying to walk in, you, you, you're, you're following the, what the script, you're, you're doing things, right? You're, but listen, if, if all of that is done in a way out of, out of the motivation to try to somehow be good enough to God, I've got to do these things so that I'm good enough for God, then that's like placing new wine in an old wineskin. What you need is a new heart to receive that new work that God wants to do. Otherwise, it's lost. And so today, if you recognize that there's never been a moment when you've trusted in Jesus by faith, never been a time when you have called on him, when you have repented of your sins, when you've turned away from trying to be good enough and earn your way to God on your own, then today, I want to challenge you. You would surrender your life to Jesus. You would come during our invitation and you would just say to, to us, I'm, I'm ready today to trust in him. I'm ready to have a new heart. And we would love to walk through a simple prayer of faith with you where you would trust in Jesus. Essentially that you would do what we, what we often call the ABCs. It's kind of a formulaic approach. I, I get it. And, and I'm the guy that doesn't like a whole lot of formulas, a lot of one, two, three, follow these steps. But, but, but it makes it easy to understand. You admit to God that you're a sinner. You believe that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sin, that he paid the price, and you confess him as Savior and Lord. A, B, C. Admit, believe, and confess. And if you're willing to do that today, and friend, you can be saved, you can be forgiven, you can be set free from the old way and the old system given a new heart by faith in Jesus. Would you come? Would you pray with me? Lord God, as we prepare now for just a time of response to this word, I pray that you would move in our hearts. And Lord, if there's anyone here today, even if they've been in the church for years, even if they've even if they've done all the right things outwardly, according to what everyone else has seen, God, if, if they've never trusted in you, if they've never received a new hope that, that comes through having a new heart, God, that you would do that work so that it might produce a new result in their life. Lord, convict us of the ways that we 
that we focus on a ritual rather than a relationship, the ways that we focus on a system rather than salvation by faith in Jesus. And God, would you move us today? Move in our hearts so that we are trusting in you and you alone for our salvation. God, you are the one who has given everything for us and we understand in your presence there is great joy, there is great reason to celebrate. God, stir our hearts now as we look to you We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together this morning. And as we sing this song of invitation, our our altars are open. Our staff are here at the front. If God is